Welcome to this reading of the Business Record, Central Iowa's Business Weekly. I'm Pat Steele. All material heard on IRIS and is intended for the use of the listeners with print disabilities. Now, here's our first story from this edition of the Business Record. Broadlands trustees approve agreement for interim CEO Cruzy settlement agreement with Medical Systems former CEO Anthony Coleman and Shell's severance cap at $800,000. This is a story written by Mike Mendenhall. Broadlands Medical Center Board of Trustees has voted to approve an agreement making Acting Chief Medical Officer Dr. Jason Cruzy the hospital system's interim chief executive officer as the organization searches for a permanent CEO, according to a Broadlawn spokesperson. The unanimous vote Monday to approve Cruzy's interim contract comes four days after Broadlawn's announced then-president and CEO Anthony Coleman had resigned after nearly 23 months in the role. According to the interim CEO agreement provided by Broadlawn's, Cruzy will receive $6,500 per pay period in addition to his $271,519 per a year physician salary and the $4,600 per pay period he's receiving as interim chief medical officer. The settlement agreement between Coleman and Broadlawns uh, excuse me, the settlement agreement between Coleman and Broadlawns provided to the business record was executed on November 3rd and shows the nonprofit Safety or Nat Hospital for Polk County agreed to pay Coleman a capped $800,000 severance following his departure. As part of Coleman's agreement, the former CEO will receive his $550,000 salary for 12 months, which started November 2nd in a biweekly installment payments. The agreement's $800,000 cap also includes, first, a lump sum $134,000 payment as compensation for any bonuses Coleman is or may have been entitled during the course of his employment. Second, a lump sum $52,619.58 payment for any accrued and unused paid time off. And third, a lump sum $63,380 42 cent payment and resolution of any and all claims released herein, inclusive of any claims for attorney's fees for which Broadlands will issue a Treasury Form 1099. Coleman's initial annual salary was $550,000. His contract included a $100,000 annual bonus opportunity if he met performance metrics set by the board that began in July 2022 according to a news release at the time of his hire. The Broadlands Board accepted Coleman's resignation on November 2nd. The board voted to hire and extend a contract to Coleman in September 2021, which was effective in December 2021. It was expected to run through June 30th of 2025. Before coming to Broadlands, the 44-year-old Coleman was Vice President of Operations and Assistant Hospital Administrator for Kaiser Permanente's large health region in San Bernardino, California. He began his career in healthcare administration with the United States Navy. He retired from the service after 20 years in 2016. He replaced 15-year Broadlands president and CEO Jody Jenner, who retired in April 2021. Cruzy's interim agreement is effective November 2nd and will remain so until a new CEO is in place 
or October 1st, 2024, the document shows. The Broadlands Board plans to initiate a national search for a new president and CEO according to a November 2nd news release, but the medical center did not immediately provide a timeline for when it hopes to have a permanent chief executive in place. Emily Toribio, Assistant Director of Marketing, Communications, and Foundation at Broadlands, said in a follow-up email November 2nd that the board was still formalizing a search plan. The agreement shows Cruz's duties will include supervising all Broadlands and Broadlands Medical Center Foundation business and financial matters, overseeing selection, hiring, supervising, disciplinary actions, and terminations of all Broadlands personnel, serving as a liaison of Broadlands medical staff, preparing and presenting reports to the Broadlands Board of Trustees concerning all phases of Broadlands operations, serving as president of the Broadlands Medical Center Foundation, carrying out all policies and directives of the Broadlands Board, ensuring Broadlands operations and the foundation are managed in a fiscally responsible and legal manner, attending and participating in the monthly Board of Trustee meetings, performing other duties historically performed by the CEO and as otherwise directed from time to time by the Broadlands Board. Broadlands has 1,200 employees, which includes 100 physicians. Continuing now with the November 9th edition of the Business Record, participants can now register for the 2024 Global Insurance Symposium, which is scheduled for April 16th and 17th at the Iowa Events Center in Des Moines. The symposium's 10-year celebration theme is Navigating a New Frontier of Risk and will be co-chaired by Aaron Pierce, who's the president and CEO of Pharmacist Mutual, and Christian Walk, Senior Vice President and Associated General Counsel for Global Atlantic Financial Company. With risk in the insurance industry, ranging from natural disasters to accidents to new technology and other unforeseen events that can lead to claims, this year's program is focused on navigating and managing risk effectively while maintaining the trust of policyholders, according to a press release. A $120 million mixed-use development is planned for the southern edge of Huxley and what the developer says will be an opportunity to provide jobs, housing, and business to the central Iowa community of about 4,800 people. Chris Gardner, who is the owner of Bella Commercial, is the developer of the 120-acre site on the west side of U.S. Highway 69. It's divided into three 40-acre parcels that will be developed into a mix of retirement and senior living, retail and restaurant, apartments, and industrial development. There's also plans for a convenience store and what would be Huxley's first hotel, although those details haven't been finalized. There's also space for an event center and a public gathering space with a fountain, including the plans as a sports complex, and Gardner said he's working on fund, uh, finding the right vendor to operate that. There are also six parcels for light industrial adjacent to the city's industrial park. The development, which will be called Anthem, will help support the growth that Huxley has experienced in recent years and provide amenities that will draw visitors uh, to Story, uh, Huxley, Story County's fastest-growing town. This look and feel and the services we can provide fills a need, said Gardner, who has lived in Huxley for more than 20 years. We don't want to lose our small-town feel, but also believe that we can support this kind of growth with proper strategic growth. 
He also believes the Anthem development could could spur uh, future developments to the south and help buffer the city from the growth being experienced in Ankeny, which is 11 miles down the road. Gardner said, I don't want to get swallowed up by Ankeny. I don't want a bunch of people from Ankeny coming and doing what we're doing here. This is my hometown, and this is what I want for the city. I think the city wants and deserves this. Keeping people here in town has been a big goal of mine, he said. Uh, excuse me, I lost my place. Oh, historically, Huxley has always been slated as a bedroom community. I'm really trying to change that. Besides bringing jobs to the community, Gardner said amenities like the event center and sports complex would bring visitors to the community and help drive revenue for other businesses in town. The first phase of the senior campus on the most northern parcel will be a combination of for-purchase and for-rent townhomes with programs and services being provided through a partnership with Bethany Life in Story City, where it provides a variety of services for older adults, Gardner said. The senior living campus will include an 18-unit-for-sale condominium project. The next phase will be a 55-plus townhome community with a mix of for-sale and for-rent also planned are two 45-unit senior apartment complexes. Bella Commercial will own and manage the for-rent senior units. Construction of the independent living townhomes will begin next spring and summer, Gardner said. To the south will be a combination of apartments geared toward young professionals along with retail, restaurants, the event center, and public space. There will be 270 total apartments with a pool and dog park areas. Three strip malls are planned with a mix of retail, restaurants, and health care and wellness. Gardner said Bella Commercial will also own and manage all the for-rent space in that parcel, including apartments, retail, and restaurant space. There will be angle parking and sidewalks throughout the area, giving it a downtown feel, he said. The entire development could take 8 to 10 years to complete. Bella Commercial grew out of Bella Homes, which focuses on custom, high-end homes starting at $1 million. Bella expanded into commercial real estate in recent years with the construction of a shopping center on the north side of the city, where a restaurant, coffee shop, and other businesses are located near a fairway grocery store. Bella Commercial also bought and renovated the Ballard Plaza, a longtime shopping center in the community. For Gardner, it's all about improving the community he calls home. He said, I grew up in Ames and have been in Huxley now for 22 years and have three kids in the school district, so I believe in Huxley. This story about uh, Huxley was written by Michael Crum, who is a senior staff writer at the Business Record. Citizens Bank, located in Sac City, was closed on Friday by the Iowa Division of Banking after examiners discovered significant loan losses not previously reported by the bank, the state agency announced. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or usually referred to as the FDIC, in a separate release estimated that covering the losses will cost the deposit insurance fund $14.8 million. Covering Citizens Bank losses with money from the fund is the least costly resolution, the FDIC said in a release. Citizens Bank, established in 1929, had a main office and drive-up facility in Sac City at the time of its closure. The two bank offices were expected to reopen today as a branch of Emmitsburg-based Iowa Trust and Savings Bank. 
Iowa Trust and Savings Bank bought all of Citizens Bank's consumer, business, and public deposits, according to news releases. Iowa Trust also purchased all the former Sac City Bank's available loans. Iowa Trust has locations in Emmitsburg, Panora, and Clive. None of Citizens Bank's consumer, business, or public entity customers lost any money, Jeff Plaguey, Iowa Superintendent of Banking, wrote in an email. Citizens Bank is the fifth bank in the United States to fail this year. It is the first bank failure in Iowa since 2011. Plaguey wrote in an email, The vast majority of banks in Iowa do a very good job of identifying and managing the various risk components, managing their asset quality, and preventing significant losses. In its third quarter call report, Citizens Bank reported over $65.5 million in total assets and over $58.9 million in total deposits, according to the release. The bank also had over $38.2 million in loans and leases, $14.1 million of which were commercial and industrial loans, according to the data posted on the bankregblogsubstack.com. Citizens Bank had a concentration of out-of-territory and out-of-state loans to one industry and incurred heavy losses in some of those loans, according to the state banking agency's release. A consent order filed in early August by the FDIC and Iowa Superintendent of Banking identified the industry as commercial trucking. Plaguey, in an email, cautioned that the losses at the bank to customers in the trucking business should not be construed as an industry-wide problem with that sector. We aren't seeing it surface in other bank exams, he said. He also declined to speculate on whether Iowa would experience other bank failures in the coming months. The sharp increase in interest rates over the past 18 months have stressed net interest margins and, in some cases, profits at many banks, Plaguey wrote. At the end of 2023's second quarter, 95% of Iowa banks were profitable and 96% had ratings of 1 or 2, he wrote. Banks are rated on a scale 1 to 5, with 1 being the top rating. Most banks do a good job of identifying risk and potential losses, either reserving for them or actually taking the loss when they downgrade a loan or their assets, Plaguey wrote. In this case, those risks had not been identified or reserved for in a timely fashion, so significant reserves and required charge-offs were required during the exam that had an immediate impact to the bank's earnings and capital to the point where the bank became insolvent. In a news release, Iowa Trust said that it is dedicated to maintaining a strong local presence in Sac City, supporting the existing and new customers with exceptional customer service and safeguarding jobs in the area. The release said that Citizens Bank employees would be retained. Two apartment projects proposed in downtown Des Moines would add 246 units to the area, several of which would be targeted for workforce housing. The two projects are The Falcon, a seven-story, 202-unit building proposed at 1435 Mulberry Street. The $62 million project would be built on a 1.3-acre site that had previously been occupied by the Des Moines Area Religious Council's food pantry. Construction would begin in fall 2024 with completion in spring 2026. High Street Lofts 2 a four-level, 44-unit building proposed at 1619 High Street. 
This is a $11.7 million project in the second phase of a project underway at 1601 High Street. Construction would begin next fall with completion expected in late 2025. The Des Moines Urban Design Review Board this week approved the final design and proposed financial assistance package for the High Street project. The board also learned about the proposed Falcon Apartments that would be located north of Central Iowa Shelter and Services, which is at 1420 Mulberry Street. The proposed Falcon project would be good for the area, said Cody Christensen, Des Moines Development Services Director. The site now provides a place to hang out or camp for some of Des Moines' homeless population, he said. Having that site developed, having more activity there would push more of the homeless population to use the shelter and reap the benefits in what the shelter provides, Christensen said. The proposed project would be designed to to mitigate the concerns that come with that location while still bringing in a project that is desirable and that will be successful, Christensen said. The site on which the Falcon is proposed to be constructed is long and narrow. Cole Davis, a project designer, designer, I should say, for Ask Studio, told the board this week the main entrance would be on the southwest side of the building. The lower two levels of the building would be parking and remaining five stories would be a mix of studio, one, and two-bedroom units. Other amenities would include an outdoor swimming pool that would be on the second floor, co-working space, dog wash, fitness center, grill station, and bike repair room, according to information provided to the board. Building materials include slate, aluminum, stained concrete, and glazing or windows. 10% or 20 of the units would be rented at affordable rates. The remaining units would be rented at market rates. The project's developers, Double Edge Development, they are located in St. Louis, High Street Lofts 2 is being developed by Wade Investments, which is located in Coralville. The project is proposed to include 31 partially underground parking stalls with four electric vehicle charging stations, three floors of studio and one and two-bedroom apartments are planned, four units, including one two-bedroom, would be rented at affordable rates. The project is proposed to receive up to $2.2 million in financial assistance. Through project-generated tax increment, the assistance is estimated to make up 18.4% of the project's financing. The property, which is currently vacant, is valued at $260,500. When the project is completed, the property is estimated to be valued at $7.2 million. And this article was written by Kathy Bolton, who's a senior staff writer at The Business Record. The Pickleball Entertainment Venue Smash Park, which opened its first location in 2018 in West Des Moines, held its grand opening of a new location Wednesday in the Twin Cities. The new venue contains 50,000 square feet of indoor and outdoor space and six premium pickleball courts. It also includes axe throwing, duck pin bowling, an arcade, darts, cornhole, a private karaoke sing suite, an outdoor patio, rooftop bar, and yard games. Smash Park CEO Monty Lockyer said in a press release that the company has been eager to enter the Twin Cities market after its analysis showed high local interest in pickleball and a shortage of quality courts. Interest in pickleball just keeps growing. It's a social sport that is accessible to people of all abilities, he said in a prepared statement. 
The Twin Cities is a perfect home for Smash Park, and we're thrilled the time has come to introduce residents to our full range of fun and unique offerings. The Iowa Grocery Industry Association recognized five honorees, including Fairway Stores Incorporated and President Garrett Flack, or Peacock, I'm sorry, Picklap as the Retail Leader of the Year during its Hall of Fame dinner on Monday. Picklap has served as president of Fairway since August 2021 and has worked at the grocer for nearly 16 years. Other award winners from the Hall of Fame dinner are Lifetime Achievement Award that goes to Speed Herrig of Cookies Food Products. Volunteer, year, Volunteer of the Year Award goes to Brett Spiker. He works at High V. Legislative Leadership Award goes to Doug Beach from Casey's General Stores. And Supplier of the Year Award goes to Mueller Yegi Associates. The Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity announced today that a new Framing Our Future Capital campaign, a $10.5 million, a $10.5 million fundraising initiative aimed at ensuring all Central Islands have the stability of an affordable and well-located home. Leading up to launch, the campaign raised more than $7.6 million, over 70% of its goal, through support from Central Iowa philanthropists, corporate partners, and foundations. American Equity Investment Life Insurance Company committed a lead gift of $1.5 million to the campaign, the largest amount ever committed to Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity by a Central Iowa-based company. Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines and Kemen Industries each provided $1 million contributions. The campaign's leadership will include honorary co-chairs Linda and Chris Nelson, as well as campaign co-chairs Mary Lou and Jerry Nugent and Tanner and Emily Kinsler. The funding will be distributed among several organizational priorities, including increasing the supply of housing near jobs due to workforce housing developments, creating new homeownership opportunities in response to a shortage of affordable units, acquiring land in areas of greater opportunity for future development while continuing to invest in uh, Greater Des Moines Habitat's traditional target neighborhoods, setting the stage for collaborative mixed-income developments and innovative multifamily housing products, moving households to home ownership through a new pathway called Habitat Direct, and ensuring financial stability and improving quality of life for current homeowners through investment in home preservation repair and modification projects. Casey's General Stores has agreed to acquire 22 Lone Star food stores in Texas from W. Douglas Distributing and its affiliates for an undisclosed price, according to announcement Tuesday. Douglas Distributing sold the stores to Casey's after selling its wholesale food distribution side to Often Petroleum. All the convenience stores except two are owned by Douglas in fee, and the stores are located within a 60-mile radius of Sherman, Texas. The sale is expected to close by the end of the month. Casey's will retain all the employees at the stores. Darren Rebelitz, CEO of Casey's, said in a prepared statement, the Lone Star convenience stores are high-quality stores located on great corners and fantastic markets. They will also serve as a springboard into the great state of Texas for Casey's while still located within our self-distribution network. We look forward to bringing our convenience store and food offerings to North Texas soon and welcome the Lone Star team, temp, uh, Lone Star team members 
to the Casey's family. Participants can now register for the 2024 Global Insurance Symposium, which is scheduled for April 16th and 17th at the Iowa Event Center in Des Moines. The symposium's 10-year celebration theme is Navigating a New Frontier of Risk and will be co-chaired by Aaron Pierce, President and CEO of Pharmacists Mutual, and Christian Walk, the Senior Vice President and Associate General Counsel for Global Atlantic Financial. Hi, you're listening to the November 9th edition of the Business Record. Our thanks to the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of the Business Record to Iris so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any of the other IRIS programs, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now back to the business record. Kevin Foley, the executive director of Des Moines International Airport, let out a sigh of relief as he sat down to discuss the future of the airport expansion project on Wednesday. The business record met with Foley hours after the Polk County voters overwhelmingly approved a $350 million bond issue to help fund the first phase of construction of a new terminal the day before. The measure passed with nearly 80% approval, far surpassing the 60% threshold needed for passage. Foley said while airport staff were celebrating another step forward for the project, the respite will be short because there's a lot of work to be done. Foley said, for five years we've been at this, educating and getting out in front of people. Today we'll catch our breath and celebrate, and tomorrow we now have additional work to do. This has given us the real possibility of completing at least part of the second phase, adding additional gates beyond the six that are in the first phase. It would save money. The construction team would just keep on going. There's no stop and start, and this has given us the opportunity to at least explore whether that's viable. The voters' approval in Tuesday's election also gives the airport much-needed leverage to seek additional state and federal dollars for the project, he said. Foley continued, It absolutely allows us to give a sigh of relief, but it also gives us additional information to go to other government entities and say, Look at the support we have from our community. They've stepped up with local dollars. Get done. As Foley spoke, construction continued on the $50 million expansion of the airport's parking garage. Work continued where the new terminal will be built. Groundwork is ongoing. A hole is dug and utilities are going in ahead of a foundation being laid. Steel is expected to begin going up next spring and summer. In addition to the continued construction, Foley said several steps need to be taken to secure the funding that voters approved. Those steps include entering into an agreement with the Polk County Board of Supervisors, conducting financial analysis, and then the county going to the bond market next summer. In a news release following the vote, airport officials said the county's better bond rating will mean a cost savings for the airport, positioning it to be more competitive in attracting airlines to add service and allow for future expansion as needed. Foley said the general obligation bonds the county will use carry a lower interest rate than general aviation revenue bonds the airport could have used, resulting in less interest paid over the life of the bond. As part of the project, the airport has converted some automobile parking on the south side of the terminal to overnight aircraft parking. Foley said we're doing that because we're out of room to park airplanes around the gate at night, so there will be six parking places opening up for aircraft there. Design on plans to move rental car operations to the south side of the airfield is also finishing up, he said. 
It's all part of the $570 million airport improvement project, including the approximately $445 million cost of phase one of a new terminal. Other elements of the project include 1,100 space expansion of the parking garage, which is scheduled to be completed in the spring of 2025. The parking garage expansion is funded by Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds. The project also includes the realignment of the airport's entrance road to the terminal. The airport has struggled with capacity to handle increased air travel, which hit record levels in Des Moines in 2019. Officials say a new terminal and related improvements are an integral component to continuing the economic development momentum the region has seen in recent years. A report last fall from the Iowa Department of Transportation's Bureau of Aviation showed that the Des Moines Airport generates about $752 million a year in economic activity for the state. Phase 1 of the terminal project addresses what fully described as congestion points, including passenger screening, luggage screening for check bags, ticket counters, baggage claim, a new restaurant, a new gift area, and six new gates, bringing the total number of gates total number of gates to 18. Foley said, more importantly than that, it's just six gates. It's wide open space, so there is no restriction between the gates. If you look at existing concourses, we have walls, and those areas are very defined. When those areas fill up, it's difficult to flow into new areas. In this design, if a gate area is getting full, it just keeps flowing into other areas. But everything is very visible. You'll know when boarding starts. You can almost be anywhere in this new terminal and see your gate. He said when a gate begins boarding, a light will turn green to alert passengers. The airport had $235 million in funding for the project. That includes a mix of state funding, federal airport improvement program funds, and money from the bipartisan infrastructure law. The airport has also reached agreement with 20 regional communities with commitments for $28.6 million. Prairie Metals has also committed $5 million to the project, fully said. If funding is available after the first phase is completed, the second phase and the addition of three more gates would begin immediately. Another two gates could be added, but they would be expensive and the last to go in because they would require a retaining wall to be built along Fluor Drive. Completion of the first phase of the new terminal is planned for fall of 2026. Once the move into the new terminal is complete, demolition of the existing terminal will begin. The next three years, there's going to be a lot of activity going on out here, Foley said. He added that the successful outcome of Tuesday's vote was the culmination of a hectic period preparing for the election. The idea of having a government bond on our behalf to save interest really only came about 90 days ago, Foley said. We went to the county, and they said they would consider it. It took some time for them to pass the resolution to allow the referendum to be put on the ballot. So now we're down to 60 days, and we had a serious discussion whether we could pull this off in 60 days or not. He said, we're awfully close. We haven't been out in front of it, he said. We thought we could. We felt that it was a positive enough move that people would understand, and clearly they did, but it has been a pretty hectic 90 days here at the airport. This article was written by Michael Crum, a senior staff writer at the Business Record. Our next story is uh, 
column called Talk to Strangers, and it's written by Rowena Crosby. And uh, this is, and she's the uh, uh, president of Terrell International in Des Moines. The next time you attend a conference, notice how people choose their seats. The predictable pattern provides insight into how we sometimes sabotage our goals. At a concurrent session facilitated by a presenter who was blind, I laughed out loud when he described the pattern the seating had likely taken in the room. When we enter a room, we first look for someone we know to sit with. Locating no familiar faces, most of us choose to sit alone, usually along the aisle, to allow for a quick exit or at least one seat away from the next person. If that is not an option in a crowded room, we look for someone like us, same gender, age, skin color, to sit next to. He was right. A quick glance around the room by the sighted people revealed that exact pattern. People sitting with colleagues or friends, the seats along the aisles completely filled, and the center sections dotted with individuals seated one, two, or three seats apart. Don't talk to strangers. This phrase is a common refrain parents and teachers preach to children. Deeply ingrained, it becomes our behavior. The result? It helps keep children safe from predators. As we mature into adulthood, the part of our brain responsible for judgment also matures. We gain the capability to discern which strangers to avoid and which ones we should get to know. Or do we? The imprinting in early childhood is so deep that we tend to carry it throughout our lifetimes. As a result, 76% of adults suffer from some level of social anxiety. That's the stress that prevents us from forging new relationships with strangers who might be valuable additions to our professional networks and social circles. Challenge yourself to leave your comfort zone. Go to a networking function alone and introduce yourself to a stranger. Sit next to someone you don't know at a conference and strike up a conversation. And again, this was a story written by Irina Crosby, president of Terrell International, a little bit about her. Uh, she's co-host of the show, The Invisible Toolbox. Since 1993, Terrell International has earned a distinguished reputation as a premier research and corporate training company. Thousands of professionals are graduates of Terrell's proprietary workshops, Courses addressing relevant business topics such as presentation skills, professional image, business etiquette, negotiation skills, leadership, and intercultural competence have been delivered in 12 countries, and business professionals from over 40 countries are numbered among Terrell's graduates. And this, again, was a sponsored column by Terrell International, written by Rowena Crosby, who's the president of Terrell. The West Des Moines Chamber of Commerce announced the community vote winners of the Best of the West Awards presented by Orion. The Best of the West Awards, a West Des Moines-focused community vote contest featuring 50 categories, will be presented during awards gala on November 28th at the Monroe in West Des Moines. Participants were able to vote for their favorite people, places, and things in West Des Moines once per day until October 31st. A portion of all sponsorship proceeds from the Best of the West Awards will directly support the West Des Moines Community Foundation. The Harkin Institute is partnering with Winefest Des Moines to host a Dining in the Dark event presented by Weinhart Law Firm at 6 p.m. on November 16th at the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center in Des Moines. Dining in the Dark will feature a three-course dinner with wine pairings. During one of the courses, 
Participants will wear blindfolds to enhance their senses other than sight to explore food and wine. The intent is for participants to gain firsthand experience of the impact that universal design brings in addressing the challenges faced by people with disabilities in the workforce and daily life, according to a news release. Purveyor Catering will provide the food for the three-course meal, and the selection of wines will be from Abby Davidson. And uh, for more information about the event and the purchase tickets, you can click on, I'm sorry, you can um, find that at the Harkin Institute website. And now for this November 9th edition of the Business Record, we look at the real estate news. This is a weekly uh, article written by Kathy Bolton of the Business Record. Uh, Varco, a, I'm sorry, Verco, a Denver-based private investment firm, has purchased the Court Avenue loss, which are located at 308 Court Avenue in Des Moines. Restaurant spaces located on the building street level are owned by separate entities. Spaghetti Works has occupied nearly 8,000 square feet of the ground floor. The restaurant's operators, which also own the space, closed the eatery in March. Space occupied by Johnny's Hall of Fame at 302 Court Avenue is owned by the establishment's operators. The four-story brick structure was built in two phases according to a National Register of Historic Place application. The first phase was completed in 1890. It included 300, 302, and 304, and 306 Court Avenue. The second phase, which included 308 and 310 Court Avenue, was completed in 1897. The building, originally called the Seth Richards Complex, is one of the largest and most intact examples of Romanesque revival-influenced commercial design in Des Moines. In its early years, the building's upper three floors were large open spaces with simple interiors. Businesses that occupied the building include Israel Brothers Wholesale Dry Goods, Bentley and Olmsted's Wholesale Boots and Shoes, and Letterer Strauss and Company Wholesale Millinery, according to the application, the street level was occupied by retail shops. In the mid-1970s, the building began being redeveloped. Restaurants opened on the street level, including Spaghetti Works, in 1978. Hubble Realty acquired the second, third, and fourth floors around 2005 and converted the space to 51 market-rate and low-income apartments, according to a spokeswoman. Redevelopment of the space was completed in 2009, according to Slingshot Architecture, which was involved in the redevelopment project. Claire Bramer, Hubble spokesperson, uh, wrote in an email, Like any development, Hubble always evaluates the market and our assets for potential sale, and this one is no different as there continues to be a strong demand for this type of housing. The portion of building that had been owned by Hubble is valued at $1.5 million. Verco, which specializes in workforce housing, wrote on its website that rent growth in Des Moines is expected to accelerate as demand increases for smaller units. Their transaction with Hubble Realty was recorded on October 30th. Also last week, Verco completed a separate real estate transaction with Des Moines Leased Housing Association, which is managed by Verco, and it paid the limited partnership $7.2 million for property located on Hall Avenue in Des Moines. The 10-acre parcel includes a five-building apartment complex developed in the mid-1990s. The three-story building includes a total of 120 units. The property is valued at $2.4 million. In other real estate transactions this week, Great American 
uh, Realty, uh, based in Belmore, New York, paid Strifex Holdings $1.8 million for property at 5400 East University Avenue in Pleasant Hill. The 1.1-acre parcel includes a recently built fast food restaurant occupied by Arby's. The brick veneer building is 2,470 square feet, and the property is valued at $1.4 million. The city of Bondurant paid Allen and Debbie Knuth $2.99 million for property located at Northeast 80th Street in Bondurant. The non-acre, I'm sorry, the nine-acre parcel includes a two-story, 1,100-square-foot house built in 1893 and remodeled in 1964. Just over three acres of the parcel is farmland, and the property is valued at $206,000. Anaheim Housing paid um, Cherie Harrell $2.6 million for property on Merle Hay Road. The 2.4-acre parcel includes a former hotel that was built in 1974. The nonprofit Anaheim Housing is converting the 20,000-square-foot building into a 40-unit permanent supportive housing community. The property is valued at $1.9 million. Joseph and Donna O'Brien paid William and Janine Blackerby $1.39 million for property on Northwest 75th Place in Johnston. The property includes a two-story, 4,500-square-foot house that was built in 2006. Charlie Tangle, based in Ankeny, paid K&N Holdings $1.5 million for property on Northeast 14th Street in Ankeny. The 4.1-acre parcel includes an office warehouse building constructed in 2009 with over 32,000 square feet of space. The property also includes other companion buildings, including large garages. That property is valued at $2.56 million. TBDN Investment, located in West Des Moines, paid Ed Allen $1 million for property at 3432 Forest Avenue in Des Moines. The property includes a three-story, 15-unit apartment building constructed in 1968. That property is valued at just over $1 million. And from Dallas County, Kevin and Lacey Taylor paid Keys Custom Homes $1.3 million for property at uh, 181st Street in Clive. The property includes a 2,900-square-foot house whose construction was completed this year, and that transaction was uh, recorded on October 30th. And that's a look at our real estate news this week from the business record. The Regents Foundation, a nonprofit funded primarily by Regents Bank, provided a $25,000 workforce grant to Iowa Jobs for America's graduates, which the acronym is IJAG, during a surprise ceremony for Student Leaders Friday at IJAG's annual Leadership Development Conference. The donation will be used for education and workforce readiness opportunities for more than 7,200 middle school and high school students across Iowa. The grant is expected to help offset the cost for students to attend conferences and participate in leadership and career workshops, academic competitions, and more. The IJAG conference hosted nearly 1,000 student leaders, grades 6 through 12, who were recently elected by their peers to serve as IJAG officers and members of the IJAG Career Association. 
During the event, officers participate in trainings, learning new skills and workshops aimed at improving leadership and programming across IJI classroom schools and communities in Iowa. Bradley Hawes has been named the Chief Executive Officer of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and Associate Vice President of UI Healthcare. The health system announced yesterday Halls will start his new role on November 29th. He previously served as UI Healthcare as Chief Financial Officer and Associate Vice President from 2018 to 2021. Most recently, he was the CFO of Emory Healthcare, part of Emory University in Atlanta. I am eager to come back to UI Healthcare in this new role, especially during a time of transformative growth for the organization and with new opportunities to expand access to high-quality health care for Iowans. Hall said this in a prepared statement. He continued, UI Healthcare is a remarkable organization. I've always been inspired by its mission along with its culture of collaboration. I'm excited to work with this incredible team again. Other past experiences of Halls include 14 years with Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City and leadership roles at the University of Virginia. Halls succeeds Kim Hunter, who has served as interim CEO of UI Hospitals and Clinics since 2022. Hunter will continue to serve as Chief Nurse Executive for the organization. As a member of UI Healthcare's executive leadership team, Halls will report to Dr. Denise Jamison, University of Iowa Vice President for Medical Affairs, and the Tyrene, uh, I'm sorry, the Tyrone D. Arts Dean of the Carver College of Medicine. Jamison said in a prepared statement, Brad has a proven track record of excellence in healthcare management, particularly in academic medicine. He's a great collaborator and brings a passion for serving our mission. Halls earned a bachelor's degree and a master's of business administration degree from Brigham Young University. The Simpson College Speech and Debate Program and Simpson's John C. Culver Public Policy Center in partnership with the State Historical Society of Iowa will present Iowa's Great Debate, Modeling Civil Discourse in Polarized Times from 7 to 8.30 p.m. on November 16th at the State Historical Building in Des Moines. At the event, members of Simpson's debate team will examine the question, does artificial intelligence cause more harm or create more good? Audience interaction through a question-answer session will follow the live debate. The evening also features a pre-event reception from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., which includes the opportunity to visit the new Civics in Action exhibit at the State Historical Society of Iowa. The event is free and open to the public. A registration is requested, and to register, you can uh, do so at the Simpson College website. Charles Peterson, program manager at John Deere, founded V Formation Leadership earlier this year to provide encouragement to local leaders in partnership with the Valley Community Center. Peterson said he created that business name to reflect the heart of what he is trying to accomplish after watching geese flying overhead as a kid and knowing now that the wings of the lead geese create rotating air currents so that the followers experience uplift from their leaders. The V Formation Leadership hosts Foundations of Leadership Quarterly Breakfast, a series of leadership discussions that gather community members from large corporations, small businesses, nonprofits, public service, and education. The first leadership event took place in May, and the second is scheduled for Thursday, November 9th, beginning at 730 
uh, a.m. at Valley Community Center, which is located at 4444 Fuller Road in West Des Moines. The topic is Foundational Lessons to Succeed and Uplift Others. And more information about the event, including the list of speakers, is available at the John Deere uh, website. The city of Waukee is exploring the potential development of an outdoor aquatic center and conducting a feasibility study to see if there's enough public support. Residents of all ages can join an interactive public input meeting at Waukee City Hall located at 230 West Hickman Road. Community members can also provide feedback in an online survey until November 30th. Input gathered through the two forums will be used in the feasibility study, which Walter's Edge Aquatic Design will provide to the city of Waukee. The study is assessing major market demand, community support, and estimated cost of development. This assessment will give us a good understanding of what an outdoor aquatic center project would look like from design concept to cost estimate, said Matt Germer, Waukee Parks and Recreation Director. If the project moves forward, a referendum would be put on the ballot for voter approval. Mainframe Studios has chosen Julia Franklin to serve as its next executive director. Starting December 1st, she will lead the thriving arts hub on downtown's north side, which opened in 2017 and is now the biggest nonprofit art studio building in the country. I really want to champion artists in our community so they feel like they're essential, Franklin told uh, DSM Magazine. I also want everyone who comes into the building to find art that interests them, that represents them, and that connects them to what they're feeling inside and with the world. Franklin currently works as the community investment specialist at Bravo, Greater Des Moines, where she manages a $4 million annual grant program that invests in more than 85 arts and culture programs in central Iowa. Previously, Franklin uh, worked or taught art at Graceland University in Lamoni, where she helped guide the construction operations at the Helene Center for the Visual Arts. She also, man- she also managed the Anderson Gallery at Drake University. Mainframe's board of directors chose Franklin after a five-month search prompted by the departure of its founding executive director, Sablone Splain, who left the role in June. In its first 16 months under independent nonprofit ownership, Iowa Public Radio says it has exceeded its fundraising targets, and officials from the news and entertainment service say the organization has the funds to grow. IPR Executive Director Myrna Johnson said that the nonprofit has brought in $8 million in current and future gifts. That surpassed the campaign's $6.5 million goal. Johnson said those funds will be used to expand its news coverage in Iowa. With this infusion of support for Iowa Public Radio, we plan to increase our journalism coverage, grow our endowment, invest in our infrastructure, and develop the next generation of public radio professionals, Johnson said in a prepared statement. Iowa Public Radio secured secured gifts from more than 200 Iowans led by a volunteer fundraising cabinet from around the state, co-chaired by Nora Everett, Julie Monson, and Robert Riley. In May, the statewide radio and streaming service announced it had already achieved 85% of its goal, reaching $5.5 million in donations and pledges. Everett said in a prepared statement, Seeing generous donors across the state step forward to show their support for Iowa Public Radio's future was incredibly rewarding. 
These supporters value IPR as a trusted local source for news, music, information, and ideas that matter to Iowans. The conversion into an independent nonprofit ownership came as IPR began to see financial support dwindle from the Iowa Border Regents, which manages the state's public universities and the Iowa legislature. By 2022, IPR had lost more than $1 million in state funding over a two-year period. The financial loss included $875,000 cut in 2020 by the Regents and elimination of $345,000 funding by the Iowa legislature. In July 2022, IPR took ownership of its 26 broadcast stations rather than managing the public radio groups of University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa, which the organization had done since 2004. IPR is an NPR network station that reports a weekly audience of over 205,000 listeners across its news, Studio One, and classical services. According to the organization, 86% 86 of IPR's annual funding comes from community support through individual contributions, grants, and corporate sponsors. The public radio network said in a release it's finalizing a new mission, vision, and four-year strategic plan to execute the priorities of the funding campaign. Johnson said in a prepared statement, We are committed to providing essential information and connection to Iowans, and we believe that the results of this campaign, along with our new brand, identity, and vision, reflect that commitment. Viridian Credit Union is asking for public input on which local nonprofit organizations should receive a portion of $35,000 for Giving Tuesday on November 28. Members of the public are invited to nominate their favorite nonprofit organization now through November 12th for a chance to receive up to $10,000. The nonprofits will be drawn at random by Viridian on November 13th. A $5,000 award will go to a nonprofit organization in each of Viridian's five market areas, including the Des Moines area, Waterloo Cedar Falls area, Cedar Rapids, Iowa City area, Omaha Council Bluffs, and the Twin Cities. An additional organization from one of these markets will be drawn for a $10,000 award. Recipients will be announced on November 28th. Each nominated organization will receive one entry for the drawing, regardless of the number of times it was nominated. Uh, you can nominate um, by November 12th for a chance to receive, um, and you can do that actually on the Viridian website. Urban Dreams will honor attorney Alfredo Parrish during its annual Roast and Toast fundraiser on November 27th. Parrish is the founder and senior partner of Parrish Crudenire, where he practices in the areas of personal injury and wrongful death, criminal defense, civil rights, employment, and labor laws, and appellate law. He has represented clients in over 200 jury trials, including a broad range of civil trials and more than 30 first-degree murder cases. He has also been selected 10 years in a row for inclusion to Best Lawyers in America. Urban Dreams is a nonprofit organization that offers services and programs in education, support, mental health counseling, substance abuse evaluation, and addressing the food pantry gap, as well as it hosts dozens of community connectivity events. If interested in supporting the Roast and Toast fundraiser, so you can email Mary Chapman at uh, M-I-C-H-A-P-M-A-N 48 at gmail.com. 
And you've been listening to the Business Record on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print, uh, blind and print Handicapped. I'm Pat Steele, and thank you for sharing your time with IRIS as we read the November 9th edition of the Business Record. Again, thank you, and we'll look forward to doing this again next week.